take our Bibles this morning. Is it on now? It's, it's dead. I'll just use this mic. take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm continuing uh, in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's turning out to be a tremendous study in the Word of God. We've been pulling back the curtain on the old and the new, the old covenant with its priesthood and its laws, and its leaders, and the new covenant. This morning I'm going to look at the glory and beauty of the earthly tabernacle, and then every passage of scripture has something in it that really has, it really has one major point, and we do have a, a major point in this passage of Scripture this morning, the first ten verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Now, the last time we met together, I was talking about the New Covenant. That was the first time really it was introduced. And we saw that the New Covenant was unrestricted in its power, eternal in its duration, and complete in its effects. While in contrast to the old covenant, which was limited, it was temporary, and it was partial. You look at the last verse of chapter 8, verse number 13, this is where I end it, when he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is already is ready to disappear. So the whole old system, Old Testament system, was ready to disappear off the scene. Remember, this is just prior to 70 A.D., the destruction of the Herodian temple in Jerusalem. And that was the final end of the whole system. The sacrificial system literally ended. The whole priesthood was, was turned upside down, and this new thing was happening. People didn't fully understand it then, but God was doing something new. He was providing the complete and ultimate way into his presence and into complete and perfect salvation. And so it was necessary that the old stuff ended. So the new covenant... As, as, as it is written in the prophet Jeremiah and in Hebrews chapter 8, which I cover last thing, several things, promises were included in it. Number one, everyone in the new covenant will have a new heart. Everyone will have a new heart. A new heart that your mind and your emotions and your will are focused in on Christ. You're focused in on God. You understand. It's new. It's brand spanking new. Like Jeremiah 24, 7 says, says, I will give you a new heart to know me. For I am the Lord, 
and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. Imagine that. A second thing of the New Covenant is that everyone in the New Covenant will have final forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. When God finally doesn't remember a thing about your sinfulness and your wickedness and your wretchedness. That's a, that's a grand day, isn't it? A third thing is that everyone in the New Covenant will have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, under the old law, people could not keep it. They had no power to keep it. They had no ability to keep it. When God gives you his spirit, he enables you to obey what he says, and you do it with delight. Where it says in in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within them and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe them. You'll want to do it. It's no pulling you with a rope. It's a desire to want to glorify God, to want to worship the Lord. And then, of course, a fourth thing, everyone in the New Covenant will have the law inside their heart. It tells us again in Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the, the last one, this last one indicates that the new covenant people would obey not so much because they have to, because they want to, because they have been given the ability to obey, the power to obey. See, that's the difference between the old and the new the old was never designed to do that. Don't get the old wrong. God said, I'm the one who designed the old system. But it was never designed to do it. See, God was not going to send a law, but he was going to send a person full of grace and full of truth, and that was going to be Jesus Christ. See, this all means this, that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. In fact, we do know exactly when the old Mosaic Covenant came to an end. God clearly indicated that it was no longer in existence at the crucifixion when the great veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Matthew 27, verse 51, records that when it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. See, God was making a statement that day that, listen, I have torn open the very thing that blocks the common person from coming to me. And I've moved it. I've not just moved it out of the way. I ripped it apart so it can no longer be put back together. See, it is at that very juncture that the writer of Hebrews looks back not to the temple 
but all the way back to the tabernacle in the wilderness, to the original blueprints he gave to Moses there on the mountain. And says, Moses, be careful that when you make the tabernacle in the wilderness, you do it exactly the way I say. Because it's going to represent how people can approach me, and it's going to represent my holiness and my glory, and how a holy God cannot be in the presence or have fellowship with sinful men unless that sin is taken care of. It cannot happen. And so, remember, let me just, a little historical perspective here, that you had the latest temple was the Herodian temple. That was the temple that died or was destroyed in 70 AD. That was it. Before that temple was 586 BC, that was, the, that was Solomon's temple, all right? We're going back all the way to the first tabernacle before our actual building was built, all right? This was the tent in the wilderness. And so that's what he wants to look to. That's what he points us to right now. And he is saying to us, listen, Scripture doesn't want us to forget the tabernacle in the wilderness under the Mosaic Covenant because it was divinely established by God. It wasn't the whim of men. It wasn't somebody who says, you know, I think uh, we should do this. I think this is what God would like. No, this came directly from heaven. And this God says, listen, if you're going to worship me, you must worship me exactly the way I tell you. If not, you're going to die. You're going to be separated from me forever. Look at verse number one of Hebrews chapter nine. This is where he says it. He says this, that because... Under the old system, it was called divine worship, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations, regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. You see that there? We are not so familiar, though, today with the tabernacle in the wilderness. But we should be, because it's in the Word of God. It's filled with great symbols that point to the work of Christ. So let's take just a few minutes and glance at the tabernacle because that's what the scripture does. And give a description of the earthly tabernacle from verse number 1 through 5. Verse 1 calls it an earthly sanctuary, and he's stressing that right here. Divine worship in an earthly sanctuary. That means God among men give the people the ability to come to him. In his prescribed manner. And then in verse number 2, look what he describes. Verse 2 of Hebrews 9. And there was a tabernacle prepared. The outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the, uh, of, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Now, he's saying basically this. There's two rooms in the tabernacle. Right? You have a curtain first. Right before the curtain, the priest ministers outside in the courtyard. He doesn't mention the courtyard here. He just mentions the two curtains, really, and the two rooms. The first room had a lampstand in it. That was a lampstand that was to provide light perpetually. So it was the responsibility of the priest to make sure that lamp constantly is burning. It never went out. It always went out. Of course, we come to the New Testament, and we see that Jesus Christ is what? The light of the world, right? And then he says there that there's a table, and on the table is sacred bread. There were 12 loaves of bread, one loaf representing each of the tribe of Israel. In fact, 
The literal Hebrew means bread, bread of the face, meaning that it's bread placed before the presence or the face of God. All right, so God is very much involved in what's going on in the tabernacle, and that bread, we come to the New Testament, and what do we find? Jesus Christ is what? The bread of life. All right, so a lot of representation here. Verse 3 says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. So there's a second veil in the temple, and that veil, behind that veil, it's called the Holy of Holies. The first room is the holy place. The second room is the Holy of Holies. And then in that room, verse 4, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was inside the Ark, we had a golden jar holding the manna. We had Aaron's rod that budded. Remember when Aaron and Moses went before Pharaoh? And then we had the, it says there, the tablets of the covenant. The Old Testament Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's no discrepancy, though, in the Bible when you get to where the Bible describes Solomon's temple and they says when they opened the Ark that the Ark uh, only had the tablets of the covenant in it and not the other things. It's only because this is the original one. And so this is the first one. And this what, what what was in the Ark of the Covenant, those three things. And of course, those things have great representation for the nation of Israel. And in verse number five, it says, and above it, when you get to the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was there. It says this, it, above it were the cherubim, that's the angels of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Remember the mercy seat? The high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. All right? And he went in there. It said, the scripture says, not without blood, but with blood. And he poured the blood over the mercy seat. And of course, what did God do? He had mercy on the people in relationship to their sin. And he forgave them. Right? That was the picture there. And then it says, this is how he ends this. Look at it. But of these things, I cannot speak in detail. So obviously he didn't want to go into the detail because he was speaking to Jews. It was still going on right outside, uh, right around them. They understood all that, but he wanted to at least mention it to them because it had great significance, uh, this tabernacle. And so now he goes to the description of the service of the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies in verse 6 and 7. And he says this, that first of all, that the priests minister daily in the first part of the sanctuary. Look at verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the, again, divine worship, the way God prescribed it. So, see, this is all in preparation of that one day. So the priests were male descendants of Aaron, who was a Levite, and the Levites were other male members of the tribe of Levi, uh, and the priests and the Levites were servants of God in the Old Testament Israel, and they had certain responsibilities. For example, the function of a priest was to look after the vessels uh, during the special ceremonies that 
they were to approach God. And then also the priest performed the offerings and sacrifices. In doing their duties, they dressed in special clothing. We find in the Old Testament in symbolic garments as they approached God. Uh, and the Levites assisted the priests and served the congregation of the temple. And they sang uh, psalms and, and kept the courts clean and helped prepare certain sacrifices and offerings, and also had a teaching function. But that's what they did. It was a very busy job. It was the functions they had to do every single day. It really never ended at all. And that was all in preparation to the special function of the high priest. And remember, there was one high priest, and the high priest was the spiritual head of Israel, And that special function was entering into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement. Now, today we know of that day. Well, kids know of that day because they get a day off usually, all right? In the beginning of September, it's called Yom Kippur, all right? Yom meaning the Hebrew word for day, Kippur to cover, uh, the Hebrew word to cover, all right? So it's the day of covering. It's the day of atonement, of covering over sin. That's what it means. And so the Day of Atonement was one day that the Act of Atonement was taking place over the mercy seat. And it was an atonement for all sin, all the sins of the people. And we're talking about millions of Israelites in the wilderness. And all their sins were atoned for on that one one day. So the high priest alone entered the second room, the Holy of Holies, once a year. Look at verse 7 of chapter 9. It says this, But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. And then how does he enter? Not without taking blood, I tell you that. Not without the sacrificial blood. That is the very thing that covers sin. It's the very thing that remits sin. He can't go in without that. And then look what it says. Which he offers for himself because he was a sinner also. And for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. He's going in and he's making a sacrifice even to the sins people commit in ignorance meaning that God's going to take care of every single last one of them. If he doesn't, you cannot have fellowship with him. If, if he doesn't do that, then men cannot come into his presence. So that day the people were cleansed so they can have a relationship with God And that relationship would go hopefully unbroken until the next year, the next Yom Kippur, the next Day of Atonement. And so the whole next year, the priests would do all the things they have to do to prepare for that day. So see, if the high priest came out from the second curtain and then came out before the people and he was he that day really was a day of death or was it, it was a day of life if the high priest emerged alive what do you think the people did they cheered they sang psalms and hymns because they were delivered 
from the wrath of God on that day. It must have been an incredible sound to hear them worship God when they saw the high priest emerging. Remember, he emerges alive, right? What a picture of Christ emerging alive from the cross, right? Saying what? God accepted the sacrifice. When the priest comes out, God accepted our sacrifice. Yes, yes. It was thrilling to know that they were in relationship with God. I wish people would think like that today. We ought to as believers. We ought to be that excited. But here's the significance of this tabernacle. Here's the significance that he's making in this passage of Scripture in verses 8 through 10. He is saying, first of all, the first significance is this. This is what it pictured. Look at verse number 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. In other words, that the way to God was not yet disclosed until this inner veil between the two rooms was torn at Christ's crucifixion. So see, I couldn't go in there into God's presence. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Nobody could do it except one God once a year. And if he didn't do the right way, he also would be in grave danger, grave trouble. See, this is the picture. All these priests were in some way responsible for key offerings. But this tabernacle really was a a symbol it was a parable it illustrated a spiritual truth and that spiritual truth is this you and i regular people couldn't come to god we had to go through this whole system to come to god in fact what happens when we ended up after the day of atonement you know what happens the next day You know what happens the very day? We sin again. And you know what what sin brings? Sin brings a thing called guilt. You know what guilt is? You ever feel guilty because you sinned? But you know what? Guilt, Guilt is a funny thing. But this becomes the very thing he begins to talk about in this passage of Scripture. And the high priests were really were in charge of five key offerings. And one of the offerings that they were in charge of, which was a required offering, it wasn't a free will offering, it was required, and it was called the guilt offering. It was offered to make payment for sin against God or against others. That means if I sin against someone, I was to make restitution to them. I was to pay them back for what I sinned against them. But it incurred guilt on my part. And so, therefore, how do you get rid of guilt? Even after the Day of Atonement, how do you get rid of guilt for the next 364 days? I lived under a cloud of guilt. Well, let's take our Bibles for a minute and turn over to Leviticus chapter 4 for a minute. Just let me pick out a few verses 
to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Leviticus chapter 4, verse number 1 says this. It says, then the Lord, Leviticus 1, chapter 4, verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord had commanded not to be done and commits any of them, verse 3, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, see that word guilt? Then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. All right, so that means uh, the guiltiness would be removed. Verse 13, it says this. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit anything which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty, verse 14, when the sin which they had committed becomes known. I want you to see something here. We can't become really guilty until the offense is known and the law rears its head and say, you did this wrong. You did this wrong. You sinned against God. And then the guilt is heaped on. Well, let me just read on. Look at verse 20. Well, verse 22. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any, of, any one of the things which the Lord has commanded, God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is known, is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. He shall lay his hands on, on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Look at verse 25. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Look down at verse 27. Now if anyone of the common people, that's all of us, sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without defect for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. In verse 31 Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. See, there's a great problem with the old system. It cannot, it cannot perfect and cleanse and remove forever the guilt that is incurred by sin. It can't do it. See, it lacked something. So see, the second significance that he talks about, back to Hebrews chapter 9, is this. And I want you to see what it says there. Hebrews 9, 9. This is what it lacked. It says, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect where? 
in conscience. Where's that? That's your inner heart. That's the inside of you. In other words, in the Old Testament, you were able to purify the outside. But you were not able to purify the inside. That was the great lack in it. And so the people, even though they went through everything God asked them to go through, it could not, in fact, the people could not be made perfect, and these sacrifices were powerless to remove sin and guilt. So the worshipers experienced no peace and continually had a guilty conscience. I don't know if you know how that feels to be guilt-ridden over a sin, over an issue that you can't do anything about. You confess it, and it still seems like the guilt lingers. Well, the very word he used here, it says he cannot make, the word make actually is the word we get the word dunamis from. Some people translate it dynamite, but that's not a good translation. It's really the word power. Right? That it's saying here, listen, it doesn't give you, the Old Testament law doesn't give you the power that you need. So the conscience can be clean. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do to do it. Also, it uses another word there. It says you cannot make the worshiper perfect. All right? To, it means to make perfect, to make complete, to carry through to its completion, to finish, to bring to an end. It could, not, it could never bring to an end the sin that I commit that brings the guilt. So it's a vicious cycle. And then, of course, he says this, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Meaning here, the consciousness of sin. Who gave us the conscience anyway? Can you surgically remove the conscience? Can you identify it on a, an x-ray screen, an MRI? Can it identify that you have a conscience or not? No, but I tell you what does. Guilt. When you do something wrong, when you sin against God and you are guilty, where does that come from? You know where that comes from? That comes from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit that is convicting you of that particular sin. And he's, now there's good guilt and bad guilt, but I'm talking about the good stuff. I'm talking about the stuff God does in our heart. So for what reason? To help you feel the weight and to remind you every day that there's something wrong inside of me. Guilt makes you feel like, what's wrong with me? Well, what's wrong is that you sinned against God. And God is your creator, and you're responsible to him. So when you sin and you break his law because he's the lawgiver, he makes the rules, then that sin or that guilt is going to be laid on you because you have a conscience. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. See, the soul as distinguished between what is morally uh, good and bad, as by way of definition, prompting you to do the former and shun the latter, condemning the one and uh, 
commending the one and condemning the other. That's what it is. It's like the umpire of your soul. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says something else, and he, and he talks about the conscience a little bit more in Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 10 too, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sin. Now, he's saying something there that's very important, that God, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, gives us the solution to ongoing guilt. What's this? To know that you're cleansed by his blood brings you to think, I don't have a consciousness of sin. I know what sin is, but I don't live under its guilt or its power or its dominion. Why? Because of Christ. Because of what he did on the cross there. I, I understand that. I don't have to be going around with a guilty conscience 24 hours a day. I don't have to offer up sacrifices like the Old Testament. I have one sacrifice who stood in my place and was the substitute there on the cross. And that is Jesus Christ. Now let's think about that for a moment. Sin is a word often used in Scripture to give the picture of a prisoner that has been taken captive and is dominated by the power of sin. Sin is also said in Romans 7 to dwell in me. So basic is the hold of sin over man that sin could hold you in bondage, and yet you can think you're free. That's what it does. It has a very deceptive nature to it. Sin is not merely, though, an external power, which just exercises a sway over a person's soul. It's gotten into our fiber. It's gotten into the center of our hearts the center of our beings, until it occupies us, until it's a master and controls us. Why is it that some people just can't get out from their sin? Because it is dominating. It occupies like an enemy occupies enemy territory. It's taken the hill. That's what sin does. And if you let it go, it will take the hill. Romans chapter 3, though, The Word of God shows us a close connection between between two things. Between the law and between sin. In fact, the law and sin kind of go together. Listen to what it says in in Romans 3.20. See, the law teaches what sin is. Listen to what it says. Just listen. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law, listen, through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. So, let's let's put the equation together here a little bit. God gives the law. The law says, don't do this. The law says, don't commit adultery. The law says, don't bear false witness. The law says, don't lie. See, the law's there, and 
the law says don't covet. Don't, don't desire to have something that God never gave you. It's someone else. It's not yours. You'll never have it. If God don't give it to you, don't covet it because it's not yours. See, so the, the law rises up. It tells us, listen, if you do this, then you're going to break the law, and through the law become, comes the knowledge that I've sinned against God, the law maker. That brings guilt to my conscience. Now, until sin is really defined, a person cannot know what sin is. Until there is a law of sin, a person cannot become guilty of sin. However, once there is a law, then there is also the knowledge of sin. And then Paul says this, referring to Gentiles, in that they show the works of the law in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, you can't get away from the law of God. It's there. God has established it in the fiber of his creation that if you sin against God, you will incur guilt in your conscience. And unfortunately, most people do not know what to do with it. So they go to the medicine cabinet, and they go to the doctor, and they they go to the psychologist, and then they go to the guru sessions, and they go to all these other things to try to what? Soothe this stuff that's going on in their heart. They don't know what to do with it instead of coming to God. So the law has two defects to it. Number one, it can define sin, but it cannot cure sin. It is like a doctor who can diagnose a disease, but who has no power to eradicate or even helpless to stop a disease. A second defect of the law is by forbidding a thing, the law makes a thing attractive. I don't know about you, but do you ever come to, do you ever have to make a turn around in a road in New Jersey, and then you come to a place, yeah, I can make a turn right there, and there's this big sign with a circle that says, don't turn around and go the other way. And I'm sitting there, I says, wait, there's no cars coming that way, no cars coming that way, no cars coming that no one's behind me, right? You ever do that? I know you do. <laughs> you know why? Because I do it once in a while. See, then you go to other states, and they don't have those signs. And I says, oh, I like that, because it, it seems dumb to me. But you know what? If that happens, and a policeman stops you, and there was no one around, and you're thinking in your head, well, there's no one around. I'm not hurting anybody. The policeman has every right to give you a ticket for making an illegal turn, doesn't he? He does. You know why? Because you broke the law, and I broke the law. See, there's something about when somebody says, don't step on the grass, that you want to step on the grass. You know what I mean? It's, so, see, the law has a weakness to it. It's by forbidding a thing, it actually makes it attractive to us. I was reading through my stuff, and I'm, I've been reading on Augustine, uh, his confessions, because he was uh, ministering up in North Africa, right where I'm going to be going. 
Uh, it's called Augustine and Hippo. It's a very large volume. But I, I read through his confessions, and it's interesting. You know what his confessions is about? His confessions of sin. It's, it's a tremendous book. And he really goes into detail. He just says, Lord, I'm going to fess up, and I'm putting it in print. And that's what he does. It became a very popular writing back then. It's great reading even today. You've got to get an abridged ber- version, though, so you can understand it. But this is what he said. I, I came across one uh, little argu- article. He says about just a li- as a kid stealing pears. This is what he says. Augustine. There was a pear tree near our vineyard filled with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and to carry our spoils away. We took a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but throw them to the pigs. Though we did eat enough to be pleasurable and fill our stomachs with that forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty of pears at home, even better ones. I picked them simply in order to be a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed it in its full. I liked sin. What was it I loved in the, th- the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have some counterfeit freedom? By doing with impunity what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence. For one second, he felt like he had power to do whatever he wanted. But what was it? See, Augustine's words simply say the desire to steal was aroused simply by the prohibition not to steal. It is at this very point that the law is weak. It is that at this very point that in regard to sin, it emerges before us because every single one of us have experienced this very thing. I shouldn't sin, but I like to sin. I shouldn't do this particular thing, but you know what? No one's going to know. I'll just do it, and I'll get over it, and I'll even confess it. And I'll get it out of there, and, and that will be it. See, the cure for sin in our passage of Scripture cannot depend on the old sacrificial system and the priesthood in accordance with the parabolic significance of the tabernacle and its arrangements and its gifts and its sacrifices that were offered because it could only purge the flesh, not the conscience. It cannot clean the conscience. It could only remove the external defilement. They could not restore the man, the person, to a right relationship with God. See, the believer who's given the ability when they believe by the Spirit of God, they are given the ability to believe in Jesus by faith, then they are set free 
from the slavery of the dominion of sin and cleansed internally of their guilty conscience. I don't have to be guilty. I don't have to be guilty of any sin I have ever committed because of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't give me liberty to go on sinning. It, goes, it gives me liberty to become a slave of Christ and love him. That's what it gives me liberty to do, and it gives me power to do it. It even gives me power to say no to my sin. Yes, my flesh wants to walk on the grass, but no, I'm not going to do it because it's breaking the law, and it doesn't honor my Lord to do it, doesn't please him, so I'm not going there. And the Spirit of God gives me the strength to do it. And I walk away. And each time I do that, I become stronger and I become stronger. And the temptations become more fierce and more complicated. And Satan is very skilled at tempting you to sin. Don't ever think you're going to out-trick him. You don't out-trick him. What you do is you put on the whole armor of God. So you, you put on Christ. So you'll be able to stand up against, not only notice what he's doing, but stand up against it and have victory in it, right? So what? You can stand up and speak the mysteries of the gospel boldly as you ought to speak. Why? You have been living with Christ, and Christ has been giving you the victory over your sin. So where, where does this point, where does this bring us? Look at verse number 10. It says, since... They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, this word Reformation, it's really saying this. Listen, there's going to come a time, and I'm going to just give it to you. There's going to come a time when Christ is going to set it all right. He's going to set it right. The word Reformation here in a physical sense means to make something straight or crooked straight. It's the example of restoring a broken bone or a twisted limb and making it straight. In other words, it's saying here that there's going to be a season of reformation when Christ makes everything right. Isn't that hope? Isn't that what he's saying here? He listen, he's listen. What does Jesus set right? You know what? I don't have time for that. But I do have some time to mention some things. And it's this, that Jesus Christ, in relation to sin, in relation to our circumstances here concerning a guilty conscience, the Bible tells us in Matthew one twenty one that Jesus saves us from sin, that we are in a position of people who need to be rescued, and that rescue is carried out by Jesus Christ at the cost of his life. Dead sinners have no capacity to rescue themselves. They are dead. Jesus also wipes out sin. Acts 3.19, it tells us there, he wipes it out. And it's a picture of ancient ink had no acid in it. It could be sponged off the surface of the vellum or the papyri that a scribe was using. That the dead sinners had no means to sponge away their sin. In their case, their sin is written with indelible ink, with permanent ink. But 
because of the work of Jesus Christ, the record of our sin is obliterated and sponged away. Where does that say that? Acts 3.19, therefore repent, return, so that your sins may be what? Wiped away. Through Jesus we are washed from sin, that our lives have been muddied and stained by sin. But dead sinners have no way to remove their stain. For the sinner is unclean, polluted, as it were, by filth, the filth of their own sin. It is Jesus Christ that has the power to cleanse it. In Acts 22 says, Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In mercy, in God's mercy, a veil is drawn across our sins, where in Romans it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. It is as if God, in his mercy and his grace, drew a veil over our sorry record of past sins and never looked at them again. In God's mercy, our sins are not reckoned to us again. In Hebrews 4, in verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It means that God does not set it down in your account. And the idea behind that is that because of our sins, we are completely and unpayably in God's debt. The debt is so huge because of our sin, we can't pay it. God says, I'm not going to keep it on your account. I'm going to not reckon your sin to your legal account. As far as I'm concerned, it looks pretty clean to me. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. Because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Not because of you. Because of Christ. See, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, it says we are set free from sin. Often, when some start learning Koine Greek, like Gabe is learning now, the first set of vocabulary words are going to have this little word in it, luo. You know what luo means? It means to loose. It's the very word that Paul uses in Romans 6, verse 18, having been freed from sin, loosed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, you have been set free to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And believe me, that's the kind of slavery you want. Because, see, slavery has to do with the kind of master you have. And if he's a good and a loving master, sure, Lord, I'll serve you. Look how gracious and merciful you have been to me. How could I not serve you and love you? See, that's, that's the thought here. We're, we're not saved to do anything we want, to live any old way we want. We're saved to love and serve and follow Christ. And you're going to find when you do that, your heart is so full of overflowing joy that you can never replace it with anything else. See, Jesus, in turn, also in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, cancels our sin. Look at the passage there. It says, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer once. 
suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he does. He puts away sin. And through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of the great offenses that we have committed against him. And in Christ putting away sin, you know what that means? He cancels out this huge debt that we owe him. Your debt is gone. And you're forgiven. And the whole essence of the word forgiven is the undeserved release of a person from something which he or she is guilty. That it would be right to exact justice on a person and administer judgment on a person who is due that penalty. But through Jesus Christ, a person is released from the punishment and penalty that God had every right to inflict upon them. They're freed from it. They're set free. Now, can you say that about yourself today? Can you say this morning that, listen, I don't walk around a guilty person because I know how to deal with my sin in Christ. And when Christ does it, he cleans it, he takes care of everything, he wipes it out, he saves me, he washes me, he blocks it out, he doesn't reckon it to my account, he sets me free, he cancels it, and he forgives me completely and totally forever. If you're walking around like that, then you're understanding the truth, but you're also understanding this, that I take care of my sin. I I understand temptation and the design of temptation And I'm keenly aware that I have my armor on because I'm in a spiritual battle and I don't want to be swept away by the deceptive schemes of Satan to drag me down and pull me back into the cesspool of guilt again. I don't need to be there. You don't need to be there as a Christian. And only Christ can deliver you and will keep you from that. So... He is saying to them, listen, you've got to give up all your ceremonies and rituals in the temple, in the tabernacle. Why? Because the fulfillment of all those ceremonies and all those rituals were brought to an end and found their complete fulfillment in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That the death of Jesus Christ made these sacrifices unnecessary because of his death Our sins were completely forgiven and fellowship with God has been completely restored. So let me just mention this. For a Christian, your relationship with God could never be broken by sin. Never. That's why the word of God uses another word, fellowship. Your fellowship with God can be broken, but your relationship In God's family, as God's children, you were adopted there. You can never go back. But my fellowship can be broken when I sin, but not my relationship. Right? So, see, if I want to have fellowship with God, then I take care of my sin. And what do I do? I confess it. And Christ promised me, when you confess your sin, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and all your unrighteousness. That's who I am. See, our identity now is now in Christ Jesus. And when you have that identity, then you could walk around boldly, praying, ministering for the Lord, 
and doing everything that God intends you to do with the gifts and abilities and, and talents and opportunities and time that he has given you. So when all the shadow fades away and they've served their purpose, the Levitical priesthood, the law that guided it and the sacrifices that were offered up were forever set aside because there was a better sacrifice. There was a better hope. It was the finished work of Jesus Christ. So then Jesus Christ can do what no old system could ever do, tears the veil so we can have complete and unbroken access to God based on Christ's sacrifice. We go to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the grandness of the word of God. Lord, if I did not know these things, I could not be set free from some very simple things that happen in my daily life. Oh, Lord, I want to serve you with my whole heart. And I know the people want to serve you with their whole heart. That's the promise, Lord, of the new covenant, that you're going to give us the power to do that. And I know, Lord, that someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit cannot have the power to obey you and serve you and love you. So I pray, Lord, that means they never became a believer. They never asked you to save them. They never came and repented before you of their sin. They never called out on your name and asked you to become their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today like that, they would call upon you and that today would be the last day that they go live their life the way they think they ought to, but it's not God's way. And, Lord, everybody who does know you, I pray, Lord, every one of us would realize the magnificent extent your sacrifice accomplished on our behalf, even in dealing with the guilt that we still that we still have because of sin, but we don't have to live there. That we would always be running to the cross, always be asking Christ to cleanse us of a sin he's already died for. And I pray, Lord, that our fellowship would be sweet and ongoing and deep and intimate. And Lord, when it's not, we know it's sin. So Lord, help us to see what it is, get it out of the way, and get back to walking with you. And thank you, Lord, that when we're adopted into your family, no one could sever us from having a relationship with you as far as being in your family. And we give you the praise and glory for that. And so, Lord, this morning, please, Do your work in our heart as you see fit. And I pray that your name would be exalted. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now we do have.